Uh, beloved, in 1969, when the first man to set foot on the moon, Neil Armstrong did that, he ushered this quite well-known quote, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I was familiar with that, as probably most of you are, but I didn't know until I did a little digging this week that actually what he really said was, that's one small step for a man. But apparently, the uh, muffling of the suit or something, it didn't pick that up. He claimed that he did. He even told people afterwards that, well, that's what I said. Um, if you just maybe want to put the little A in a parentheses in the quote, I'd appreciate it. And then it wasn't until 2006 they did a computer analysis on, or computer analysis on the sound waves and actually did demonstrate that he said precisely that. And then after that, when that was confirmed, he uh, issued these humble quotes. He said, well, I did think about it after the landing, but it was a pretty simple statement. It wasn't a very complex thing. It just was what it was uh, in an almost nonchalant, again, kind of humble manner. And I wonder if the Apostle Paul, when he put his first step on a ship in Troas, whether he thought it was just one simple little step, one simple little thing, or at some level he understood the monumental shift and the magnitude of what was taking place. It was one small step for a man. It was one giant leap for the gospel, for the progress of the gospel. Beloved, please open your Bibles to the first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians. And beloved, we embark on a historic moment here in Santan Bible Church. Just this, that we are starting our 15th study of a book of the Bible here this morning. And I will confess joyfully that I'm looking forward to this with a particular excitement. It's very similar to when I preached through the book of Philippians to my beloved Santan Bible Church. That was the first book I preached after my beloved Margie went home to be with the Lord after I finished the first 25 chapters of Genesis. And the tremendous joy it was to preach Philippians to a Philippian church. Well, in very much the same way, the Thessalonian church is a mature church. It's a joy-giving church. It is, as we will see, a model church. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a Reformed theologian, he made this statement. I don't know it was kind of a sardonic reform kind of humor. But what Niebuhr said was, the church is like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm on the outside, we wouldn't be able to stand the stink on the inside. Now, I, the, the greatest humor usually has a kernel of truth to it. But I will say this, whether he was 100%, 50%, or 0% joking, I would say Niebuhr wasn't thinking of Santan Bible Church when he made that comment. He wasn't thinking, uh, which of course he'd never heard of us, but he wasn't thinking of the Thessalonian church. The Thessalonian church was a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of the Apostle Paul. And even, obviously, more importantly, is a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God. Beloved, listen as I read. Now, our passage this morning is verse 1. This is an introduction and a summary. This is God's introduction and summary, Paul's introduction and summary. And this is our introduction and summary in verse 1. That is our text this morning. But I'll read the entire chapter 1, the 10 verses, to set the stage for the journey that we have before us. This is the Word of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And verse 1, Paul and Silvanus... And Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, it's been said that a sermon without an introduction is like a house without a porch, or a letter without an introduction would be the same. It might be something similar if you think of being at a barbecue and you walk up into a conversation and that you don't know the background, you are kind of uncertain of what's taking place. Well, what God does here is he provides an introduction for us to this letter. And what we'll see in verse 1 are three introductory details to set the stage. And these are three introductory details that were very common in letters in the Greco-Roman world at that time, and certainly in the biblical letters, in Paul's 13 epistles. The three introductory details are the author, the audience, and the greeting. And beloved, the intent here this morning, the intent of this introduction, the intent of the whole book is that we would be comforted, we would be challenged, that we would grow. It is to encourage us, to encourage you, and to exhort you, to exhort us. So let's look at this first introductory detail, namely the author, or we could say the authors with the S in parentheses. Uh, look at the text, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And this is what we see also in the second letter to the Thessalonian church. In 2 Thessalonians 1.1, the same trio is given there. Paul is the first. Paul is his Greek name. Paulos means little one. Saul was his Hebrew name. And he is a unique man. He is the unique apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus had his 12 original apostles. He had Matthias who replaced Judas the one. But Paul is the unique apostle to the Gentiles. And he is, of course, the author of 13 New Testament letters. Some people have said he is possibly the greatest Christian that has ever lived on this side of Pentecost. And Paul is the primary author of this letter. Silvanus and Timothy are in agreement. And one thing that's interesting here is Paul does not identify himself as an apostle. In nine of his 13 letters, he identifies himself as an apostle. The letters that he doesn't do this are here in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philippians, and then the personal letter to Philemon. 
And I think the reason there is in all three of those cases of the Thessalonians, the Philippians, and Philemon, there's a very amiable relationship. And there's a very, in the case of the churches, a very mature church. And that is likely why he doesn't identify himself as an apostle. So Paul and Silvanus. Uh, Silvanus is the Roman name. The Greek version of it is Silas. Silvanus was the Roman god of the countryside and the woods. That's why we have our English word sylvan, which means woods, or for example, the state of Pennsylvania, that's the woodlands of Penn, of William Penn. So Silvanus is the Roman name, Silas is the Greek version. And it is interesting, one thing I'll say is that Paul here, and Paul consistently, and then as well as Peter, Peter makes reference to him. Both Peter and Paul use the name Silvanus. Luke, as we will see in a bit through Acts 15 and forward, exclusively uses Silas. Um, I don't know why this is the case. Perhaps it's because Paul and Peter as Jews use uh, the Roman name Silvanus, and Luke as a Gentile uses the Greek. Again, not sure, but that is a distinction. It is the same man. And one word, we will come to know him a little bit more as we continue here, but one thing to understand and really to kind of open up is Silvanus, or Silas, as Luke refers to him, was known for his absolute reliability and his faithfulness and his fidelity. He was known for his loyalty to his brothers and sisters in Christ, and even more importantly, for his loyalty to Christ, even to the point of risking his death. A turn... Back to Acts chapter 15, if you want to place a bookmark or hold your thumb there, we will spend some time in between Acts 15 through 17 and 1 Thessalonians. In Acts 15, at the time of the Jerusalem Council, I draw your attention to verses 25 and 26. In the middle of the apostolic decree, Acts 15 verse 25, the apostles and brethren said, it seemed good to us having become of, one, become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will report the same things by word of mouth. So Silas was an este- was a esteemed man among the brethren, an esteemed man in the Jerusalem church. And as I mentioned, even Peter makes reference to him. In 1 Peter 5.12, Peter says, in somewhat the same vein of being a co-author, so to speak, Peter writes, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. Uh, We don't know with 100% certainty if it's the same Silvanus, uh, but very likely, most probably it is. So Paul and Silvanus, or Paul and Silas, and Timothy, Timothy, young Timothy, was the son of a Jewish mother. He had a Greek father. He became well-known in Rome, for example, when he was ministering to Paul in Paul's imprisonments. He was also well-known in Greece and in Asia Minor and even the Promised Land as well. And even here, with what we could call Paul and Silas and Timothy, we could say this is God's terrific trio that these three men here, even within this, in the very nascent beginning, in the early stages of the church, even as God is writing the word, there is some diversity there. Both Paul and Silas are Jews ensconced in that background, whereas Timothy, as mentioned before, had a Greek mother and a Jewish father. 
and Timotheus, whereas both Paul and Silvanus, we see two different names. Timotheus, Timotheus is the only name. And even as I was thinking of that, uh, my beloved Margie's brother, Anthony, used to call me Claymotheus. Um, he doesn't profess to be a believer. I, I love him, but uh, I think he's probably getting that from Timotheus or Timotheus. But in any event, beloved, both Silas and Timothy, along, of course, with the great mighty apostle Paul, played a hugely important role in preaching the gospel in both Macedonia and Achaia. They are God's terrific trio of preachers, so much so that in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 19, Paul there wrote, The Son of God, Christ Jesus, this is to the Corinthian church, was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy. So, these are the authors. Paul is the primary authors. Silvanus and Timothy are in agreement. The context here, back in 1 Thessalonians, this is a real man, Paul, with real friends, with a real vision, committed to a real cause, writing to real people with real struggles. This is what will unfold as we continue to have this letter unpacked before us. And now, we go from Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council into what is called the second missionary journey of Paul. And another choice quote, not nearly as famous, of course, as Armstrong, it's been said that the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. So here, back in Acts chapter 15, what we have is Silas being the leading man among the brethren. He is Paul's partner throughout the entire duration of the second missionary journey, except for a few places where they have to separate because of opposition. Uh, Antioch was the launch point for Paul and Silas uh, for the second missionary journey. And then as we go forward in Acts chapter 15, and by the way, pause there for a second. You may remember that Paul was partnered with Barnabas. But at the end of chapter 15, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them, and Paul said no way, because Paul, according to the report, said that John Mark had deserted them previously. So there was a separation between Paul and Barnabas, and that was where God picked his man Silas to come in and be the first right-hand partner with Paul on that. And just one point on that, of course, the whole sermon, many applications could be drawn out, but beloved, one thing is that even out of separation comes blessing. Separation that may be providential, separation that even on the side of eternity may be sinful. God still, in this case, produced blessing from it. So Paul and Silas launch from Antioch, and then look at chapter 16, Acts 16, verse 1. They pick up Timothy, young Timothy, in Lystra. And he came also to Derbe, Acts 16, 1, and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple is there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So what happens now is... Paul wants to go, he, after he and Silas pick up Timothy, Paul has a desire in his mind he wants go, to go back into Asia Minor, but God prevents him from that. So then Paul says, well, that was south. Well, so Paul says, okay, well, maybe I'll go north into Bithynia, and God prevents that as well. 
So if they're coming from the east and you can't go south, you can't go north, the only direction you can go to is west. And this is what leads into the great Macedonian call that God gave to the Apostle Paul in a vision at the beginning of a second missionary journey. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 16. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So right there, Luke, as he's writing this, says we. So Luke joins the terrific trio of Paul, Silas, and Timothy there in Troas, and the terrific trio becomes God's fantastic four. And they're the ones that set foot on that ship in Troas to go across the Aegean Sea into what we would now call as Europe. So again, one small step for a man, or for this case, four men, and one giant leap for the progress of the gospel. The Lord says in the vision, I don't want you, Paul, providentially to go to Asia Minor. I want you to go to Europe. So they sail across into Europe. They go from Troas, they, let, they go through Samothrace, and then into the little seaport of Neapolis, then 11 miles inland to Philippi. So they go from picking the big cities that you'd be most familiar with and the big cities where in the economy and providence of God, he did the biggest impact. They go from Troas to Philippi, then from Philippi to Thessalonica, then further west down to Berea, then they go down to Athens, then to Corinth. So that spans the second missionary journey from Acts 15, 36 to Acts 18, verse 52. And what we see is in the first big location, the first most important location of Philippi, and, and by the way, those cities that I gave, those are all major commerce centers. And so all of this in one sense, falls under the umbrella of divine <clears throat> sovereignty and human responsibility. That basically there's a confidence that when the gospel penetrates these important providential pro uh, commerce centers, that the gospel will then spread to the surrounding area. So that is what God has. And what we have, look at verse 12 of Acts chapter 16 when we go to Philippi. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So Philippi had a very small Jewish population. In fact, they didn't even have enough Jewish men to constitute a synagogue. So they would have a place of prayer by the riverside. So that's why Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke went to that. And they encountered this godly group of women, very reminiscent to the godly women that were there at the tomb at the resurrection of Christ. And what we have is, from a human perspective, a seemingly unremarkable meeting by the side of a river. But beloved, this is one of the most pivotal moments in the annals of all of human history. You and I are sitting here in 21st century United States of America because God took the gospel from the east to the west, from the oriental world to the occidental world, from Asia into Europe. And it is here at this strategic mountain pass of Philippi that the gospel first set its feet 
in the Western world. Philippi <clears throat> was a gateway to Europe. If Ephesus was a gateway to Asia, according to Acts chapter 19, and there is great success. One of the godly women by the riverside was Lydia. She was a godly woman, a seller of purple fabric. She heard the gospel. She believed the gospel, and this little beginning church began to grow, but then these pagans began to have their pocketbook impacted. Some of the pagan henchmen, or in the case here in Acts 16, a pagan henchwoman heard the gospel, and so the sorcerers and magicians began to see their business being threatened, so they had Paul and Silas thrown into jail. And out of that providential act of God came mercy in the form of a Philippian jailer who was saved. So this was the beginning of the church. It began with success, <clears throat> but then opposition set in. And that's even what Paul had in his mind when he reminded the Thessalonian church. In chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he said, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. So when they were released from jail, they had to leave Philippi. So then they continued traveling along the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way was the Roman highway going from east to west. They traveled about 100 miles from Philippi down to Thessalonica. Thessalonica, and, and by the way, there's a little extra history here because this is part of the history. There's a little extra biblical history, and there's even a, le a little extra history outside because all of this, beloved, is driving home the reminder for us of God's sovereign hand. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's a biblical history. But even the extra-biblical history is a demonstration of God's sovereign hand moving behind the events of men for the good and blessing of his children for his glory. So <clears throat> this town was originally called Therma because of the presence of hot springs. In 315 B.C., it was renamed Thessalonica. It was renamed by General Cassander. General Cassander was one of the four generals of Alexander the Great, one of the four Diadochi, the successors. And Cassander the general, the successors of Alexander the Great after Alexander the Great passed away. Cassander renamed Therma Thessalonica after his wife Thessalonica, who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. So, beloved, again, I'm just bringing out these extra-biblical histories that intersect with the biblical history of God unfolding his plan of redemption. Thessalonica is the northernmost seaport of the Aegean Sea. It's also on the Ignatian Way, and it ranks with Corinth in Achaia and Ephesus in Asia as the major seaport of those three different Roman provinces. Thessalonica was... It was a populated town. It was about 200,000 people at the time of Paul's ministry and the time of the writing. It was filled with soldiers, sailors, travelers, businessmen, traders. Uh, most Thessalonians were native Greeks. Uh, it was also the capital of Macedonia. In uh, 168 B.C., Thessalonica became the capital of Macedonia and was known at that point the mother of Macedonia. And so because it was the capital of that province of Rome, the Roman governor was there, but at the same time, it was declared a free city, so it still maintained most of its Greek culture. It wasn't a Roman colony like Philippi. It didn't have the presence of a Roman garrison. So most of the population are native Greeks. There's a good number of 
Romans, also some Asiatics and some Orientals, and here's a distinction with Philippi, they had a very significant presence of Jewish people. There was a large number of Jewish people in Thessalonica, and in fact, they had a large number of Jewish population all the way up until World War II when the monster Hitler exported 60,000 of them and murdered them in his murderous holocaust. So they had a very large Jewish population. And because of that, Paul did what was his custom. We know from Romans 1.16, the gospel comes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Look at Acts 17, verses 1 and 2, as we continue our brief tour of the biblical history. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, that was leaving from Philippi, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So Paul reasoned with them from the scripture. He explained to them. He illustrated it. And I love he basically first from the scripture, from what we have as the Old Testament, he showed them that the Christ had to first suffer and die. Then once that foundation was established, he said, by the way, the man Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of that promise. And so this is a synagogue that has a number of Jewish men and women that know the word of God. And what Paul continues to do that we know from Thessalonians is he lays down his life as an example for the Thessalonian believers. He witnessed with the word and he witnessed with his life. And while verse 1 says he did this for three Sabbaths, we know that he was there for quite a bit longer, probably at least three or four more months because he laid down a foundation of living with them and working among them. And in fact, he received more than, he received a gift from the Philippian church more than once. So he was there for three, four months to be sure. But what's probably taking place was he began in the synagogue and then he turned his focus to the Gentiles. This is what he had done, for example, in his first missionary journey in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Um, to expand just a little bit and even tying into what we will see in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy worked while they were there, worked while they were operating as pioneer missionaries. For a moment, turn back over to 1 Thessalonians, look at chapter 2, verse 9. So, tent-making Paul and his compadres, verse 9, You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Or 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8, similar language in both letters. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. So their piety, their discipline, their love, their concern, their pastoral affection, the conviction they had about the truth of the gospel, they paired that together 
with a, we could say in the modern vernacular, a tremendous work ethic. And they didn't want anything to stand in the way of the gospel proclamation. And because of this, by God's grace and mercy, it was met with great success. In Acts, turn back to Acts chapter 17, look at verse 4. And some of them, this would be some of the Jews in the synagogue, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Now, God-fearing Greeks, these are, this is a big majority, or a majority compared to the small, smaller a Jewish portion of believers here that are trusting God, these God-fearing Gentile men and women. So what's the dynamic there? Well, the dynamic is, meaning the God-fearing Thessalonica, uh, unlike Corinth, uh, Corinth, the city of Corinth, was so wicked and perverse, they had a word that basically was a verb that described acting in a grotesque, perverse way. We don't have something like that with the town of Thessalonica, but this town was embedded in wickedness and vice and sin. And out of this, it was a prosperous city as well. They had doctors in Thessalonica. In fact, they had some of the best doctors in the world at that time. But every Thessalonian was going to die. They had vineyards and fine wine. They had the games to watch. But when the excitement died down, they still had to live with themselves. They could, the Thessalonians could indulge themselves in whatever their money could provide for them. But they still had to live with their seared consciences. They had everything the world offered, and yet they had nothing. And so... Because of that, there were some of these pagan Gentiles that turned from their pagan ways to the God of Israel. And this is what lays the foundation for them being ripe for the gospel. They were surrounding the synagogue and ripe for the gospel. Now, we're in Thessalonica here in Acts, in this trip through the historical journey. Things are going well. We remember that just prior to this, that Paul and Silas faced great opposition from the pagans in Philippi. But here in Thessalonica, it began in the synagogue. And I mean, things are going to turn out differently here. They won't have the same problem, right? Well, look at verse 5 here in Acts 17. But the Jews becoming jealous, this would be the unsaved Jews, not the saved Jews. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, wicked men of the rabble, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. So Jason is one of these number of men. Very likely the church, remember this was when they had house churches. They didn't have beautiful edifices like the one God has blessed us with here. Jason was probably a relatively wealthy man and so he had some kind of villa that he opened up for the beginning church. So opposition is getting in. What's taking place here is the unsaved Jews that Luke is referring to here, they could, didn't mind so much what was taking place, but when all of these, this multitude of God-fearing Gentiles and leading women began to go out of the synagogue and follow this new way, that began to affect their pocketbook. And beloved, understand this. False teachers, whether they be of the Jewish side or false teachers, be they of the Gentile Christian side, will tolerate just about anything until you begin to impact their power, or their prestige, or their purse. 
They'll even tolerate, and by the way, I speak out of personal experience at another land and another time. They'll tolerate even the unfiltered word of God until it begins to crumble their facade of piety and prestige that have been built up under the spotlight of the word. At that point, watch out. And by the way, I love Luke's sugar-coated, seeker-friendly language, ESV language, the wicked men of the rabble. So because of that, it does have success, but again, similar to Philippi, they need to move on. So they continue on another 40 miles or so along the Ignatian Way to Berea, where there's even more success. Look at verses 11 and 12. You may be familiar with verse 11. Now these, meaning the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed along with, so that would be the Jewish people in the synagogue, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So even greater success than in Thessalonica. And this was, this was at one point in my life when somebody would say in my early Christian life, I was very heavy on maybe discernment and love for the truth and not so heavy on grace and mercy and wisdom, but that's a different story. And I used to say that Acts 17.11 is my favorite verse. My favorite verse right now is 1 Thessalonians 1.1, in case you're wondering. Next week, or actually at about 12 o'clock, it'll be uh, chapter two or verse 2 and forward, but I digress. But the point I'm getting at here is, if you're familiar with verse 11, oh, the Bereans, the Bereans, eh, you know, the Thessalonians. But, but no, 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 stay tuned. Don't, don't uh, write off the Thessalonians quite yet. So great success, but again, look at verse 13, more opposition. Actually, op- opposition is exported from Thessalonica to Berea, verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there likewise agitating and stirring up the crowds. So, beloved, the missionary pastor becomes the persecuted pastor. Um, From this point as you go forward, Paul is sent for his own safety from Berea to Athens. He goes there by himself. Later on, Silas and Timothy join him. Uh, When we read the rest of Acts chapter 17, we see Paul's great ministry, his great sermon on in the Areopagus on Mars Hill. Uh, Again, Silas and Timothy rejoin him. And then from Athens, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to get a report. Later on, he sends Silas to Philippi. And then eventually, Paul uh, has both Silas and Timothy rejoin him when they all come together in Corinth. And you can read that in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. But notice this. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, great initial success, but then opposition, persecution, being jailed and being driven out of town. Athens, as wonderful as the sermon at Mars Hill is, there's really no success. And in one sense, you can kind of understand this. Paul's ministry in the providence of God always seemed to be either revival or a riot. We could also understand this, that the Holy Spirit moves Paul along not with a providential carrot, but with a providential stick. And beloved, God is good. He is Paul's loving, gracious father. And again, he uses the providential stick, not the carrot. Beloved, as we would take this truth and apply it even now in this day and age, our 
liberty, not just our, not our Christian liberty, I mean our, our very liberty may be at risk. It may at some point even be taken away by evil men. That's the liberty, but your identity in Christ. No evil man, no evil woman, no despot, no president, no dictator can in any way, shape, or form impact, touch, or take away your identity in Christ. That's why Spurgeon had this great uh, quote uh, by way of application of this truth to our lives. He said this, if Jesus loves you and you're sick, let the world see how you glorify God in your sickness. If your religion is worth anything, it ought to support you now, and it will compel unbelievers to see that he whom the Lord loves is in better case when he's sick than the ungodly when full of health and vigor, end quote. And beloved, <clears throat> remember also this, pressure is from God. Stress is our sinful response to it. And so, here on the history way, Timothy, as I mentioned, returns to Paul and Silas in Corinth with a report. Now turn back to 1 Thessalonians and look at chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Paul wanted to go back. He lo he, Paul loved the Philippian church. He loved the Thessalonian church. He would rather get the report, answer questions in person, but he had to write a letter and praise God for it because that's what we're studying. First Thessalonians 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Beloved, that is the impact. That's the report that Timothy brought back. And so from this, Paul writes this beautiful letter, a letter that's filled with general encouragement um, and also specific answers and pastoral counsel to some specific questions that the, Thess that the uh, Thessalonians believers had sent Timothy back with. And Paul writes this letter, the man Paul, the real man Paul, writes this letter to the real people in Thessalonica with pastoral zeal and intense concern. He writes this letter to meet the needs of his flock. And beloved, Paul's ministry, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy's ministry, is not characterized by flash and style. It's characterized by holiness and substance. They had their boots on the ground. <clears throat> and what we see, even we saw this in chapter 1, Paul cites himself and Silvanus and Timothy as an example, and he writes to exhort them to excel even more. And in fact, that's a good outline of the book. Chapters 1 through 3 is personal example. Chapters 4 and 5 is pastoral exhortation. And Paul, God tells you and me how to think, what to believe, and how to live. He exhorts you and me to even greater levels of holiness. And he doesn't just exhort us to holiness. God tells us how to get there. That is what lays before us in this book. So that's the author. The second introductory detail, some of which we've covered at a certain level already, is the audience. And beloved, we are reminded that every church, every church has two homes, two environments, two habitats. She lives in God, and she lives in the world. Look at the middle of verse 1. 
to the church of the Thessalonians. Uh, one word here, just kind of a general statement from this letter. The church of the Thessalonians was primarily made up of Gentile converts. We know that back from Acts 17, verse 4. There were some Jews, but there was a multitude of God-fearing Gentiles and Gentile-leading women. We also know this because in 1 Thessalonians, Paul doesn't one time have a direct quote from the Old Testament. We also know this from verse 9 of chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians. For they themselves report about, so the churches in Macedonia and Achaia report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So they, again, are primarily made up of converted God-fearers to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul very often does, right here at the beginning of the letter, even in the introduction, even in the introduction, he brings out the oneness of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In one breath, there's unity. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are on the same footing. They're two different persons, but they are one in being, one in power, and one in glory. Now, Jesus Christ is along with God the Father, the giver of grace and peace, that he finishes this opening verse with. This is the vital union of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that vital union of the Father and the Son lays the foundation for the vital union that you and I enjoy together in Christ. In fulfillment of Christ's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. It is the vital union and identity of the Thessalonian believers in God the Father. In God the Father. That means living in, rooted in, life flowing from. Beloved, dear friend, you can be in a church building and not be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be in a church worship service and not be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But you cannot be in the church and not be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting those double negatives together, if you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in the church, his church, in his local church, and his church universal. And also notice the little word of, the church of the Thessalonians. This is the only church in the New Testament that received a letter where they use of. For example, in the it's the church at Philippi, the church at Rome. It's the church in Ephesus. This is the only occasion where we read the church of the Thessalonians. So, as good students of the word, we ask the question, why? What's this little subtle nuance? What's the import of that? Beloved, this is the church of the Thessalonians. This describes in a powerful way the sphere of their new life in regeneration. This highlights and accents their witness of the gospel and their stand for the truth. And it ties into what we will see as we go through this letter, that the Thessalonian church is a model church. It's a model church with a message ringing out to the world. Look at verse 8 again, here chapter 1. 
The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth. This is a model church. That's why I think Paul, under the superintending power of the Holy Spirit, says the church of the Thessalonians. He's saying this little church, which, by the way, is only a few to several months old. They are an island in a sea of paganism. And this sweet little fledgling church didn't just live in the sewage pipe of Thessalonica. They were thriving in the sewage pipe of Thessalonica. They are a model church. And how beautiful that what we see here in chapter 1, and we've touched on already, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy set the example for these new believers, and now these new believers are turning around and setting an example for the entire world, for all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. And who are these model Thessalonian believers? Well, we'll meet the weak, we'll meet the faint-hearted, we'll meet the strong, we'll meet the lazy slackers and the diligent workers. And they are a model church, but that's why the Apostle Paul says, don't just rest on your amazing grace. Continue on to greater heights. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 10. If you've been here for a while, you might see a phrase that perhaps you've heard once or twice. At the end of verse 1 of chapter 4, how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk so that you may excel still more. Or verse 10. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren, who you who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Beloved, if you'll tolerate a, a personal illustration, just as I'm opening up here to, to I thank you, I don't deserve you, I don't deserve your love. Uh, but Tuesday was the first time where I thanked God for my extremely rare, irreversible, foreign agent, apparently spawned, cardiac sarcoidosis. I hadn't complained to the Lord before that, but on Tuesday morning, I began thanking the Lord for this because God is using this to have me focus more on the things of the Lord. For greater levels, I pray for sanctification, for greater levels of purity, for greater levels of contentment. God, I mean, beloved, God is good. And it's the same God of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, of you, of Bill, of Anne, of Scott, of Jaden, of Tim, of me. It is the same good God at work. That's the authors, that's the audience. Finally, beloved, the third introductory detail is the greeting. And it's one that we've seen, in fact, we see the same greeting in all 13 of Paul's letters. Grace to you and peace. Grace. God's freely bestowed loving kindness in operation. The Thessalonian believers are already saved, or they already have saving grace. What Paul is doing here is he's praying for continued sanctifying grace. Grace and peace, not merely the absence of conflict, but a full deep sense of well-being and salvation. The shalom peace of the Old Testament, the smile of God reflected in the hearts of his redeemed. The peace that is found only in the love and grace and kindness in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, grace and peace. This is God's empowering favor and God's 
showering shalom. Again, God's empowering favor and God's showering shalom. And there is a logical order. You must first have grace to have the true peace. One commentator said, grace is the fountain and, stream, and uh, peace is the stream that flows from it. And there's perhaps not a better concise summary of the gospel than peace through grace. Beloved, even as the beautiful songs reflected that we sang before, the lyrics of the song, we have grace for our sins and peace for our guilt. God pardons us as judge and accepts us as father. Beloved, this is the message of 1 Thessalonians. This is the message that's always the issue of the day. This is always the task at hand for the son of God, for the daughter of God. Beloved, we, Santan Bible Church, is a flock. It's not a factory. She's a congregation, not a corporation. This is all about God's work being done God's way for God's glory. Please join me, my beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you and thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. We look forward, Lord God, with this study with great anticipation. Open up our eyes, Lord, to behold the beautiful things contained in this book. Speak to us through 1 Thessalonians. Quiet our hearts so that we may listen to this in its expectancy. Lord, be glorified in all that we do and it's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing and then after our singing, we commit some godly parents and their children unto you. Amen.